Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16, verse 1. We are here today to remember the death and the burial of Jesus and to celebrate his resurrection from the dead. Our faith shares something um, unlike any other faith in all the world. It is that our God doesn't demand something of us to come to us. Our God comes down the mountain out of eternity, clothes himself in flesh in order to become all that we need so that we can get to him. He lays down his very life for us. In every other faith, in every other culture, it's about us emptying ourselves and making ourselves into nothing so that we can be transcendent. But in this faith, it is that we are emptying ourselves so that we can be full of the life of God and be with Him forever. It's not about emptiness. It's about fullness and abundance, and it only comes through the person of Jesus. And today, as we focus our hearts on the resurrection, we are doing what the church and what history has been doing for 2,000 years. We are quaking under the atomic bomb of resurrection and still feeling the rattling in our bones of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. That is what we are talking about today. That is why we are here. Uh, You know, we can go from church to church and from group to group this morning, and we can hold differences of opinions. We can even argue over our personal preferences and convictions. But what we can't disagree on is the power of a man who was once dead and is now alive forever. Are you with me? And that has tremendous bearing on who I am and how I live. Think about it for a moment. If Jesus is born of a virgin, suffers under the hands of men, and is raised to life. Have you been to a funeral lately? Anybody? It is raised to life out of that. And not just lives to die again. He will never die again. It changes the way that I live on a Monday. Are you with me? It's not just faith that's located on a Sunday morning, closed up in church buildings. It is a faith of a, of a God who gets into your life and business, who changes the very fabric of how you do things. Because he is, he is resurrection life, and he is filling us with that same resurrection power. The resurrection of Jesus is the exclamation point on Christ's suffering and his obedience. The resurrection is the exclamation point on God's love for you and me, and it's God's declaration that this thing won't end in death but in life. As Frederick Buechner writes, resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. This morning, may, you may, uh, maybe you've come in and you have a, a whole collection of worst things. Maybe you're sitting under the weight of worst things, things that have set on you, losses and failures and moments of crisis. The resurrection is the promise that our very worst thing is not the very last thing because everything ends. When I'm in Christ, everything ends in life. And 1 Corinthians has this kind of throwaway statement that I love. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Not really. But he says that that last breath, when I'm passing from this life into the next, what's happening is I'm being swallowed up by life. Like, I, on my worst day, guys, on your worst day, if I leave here today and pass away in that parking lot, I am more alive than I've ever been. I'm more free than I've ever been. I'm more whole than I've ever been. But if I'm not in Christ, I don't have that hope. I don't have that that freedom. I don't have that kind of confidence 
Because everything that I need is just found in this life if I'm not in Christ. But when I belong to Jesus, everything is moving towards life that only gets bigger and louder the closer I get. Amen? And so this morning, I want to look at three statements that just emerged from the resurrection story. How many of you are good to just dive into the resurrection story this morning? And so we're going to look at three statements that kind of rise up um, out of the resurrection story. One that I believe all of humanity is asking. The second is the invitation to see the answer to our question. And the last is a command to respond. And these are the statements that we'll be looking at this morning. Who will roll away the stone? Come and see and go and tell. And so look with me in Mark chapter 16, verse 1. We'll be reading there. And when we get to four, verse 4, we're going to jump over to Matthew 28. Tell them. The babies are already talking, so we're doing good. Mark 16. I need a page turner. I'm just kidding. That would be weird. Like, remember that Easter we went to that church and the guy had a page turner? That was really weird. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Now turn to Matthew 28 very quickly. If you got your Bibles. I just hear thumbs moving on screens. That's great. All right. Matthew 28, and we're going to look at verse 2. And there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven. And going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone, and he sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook, and they became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Listen to it. Come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead, and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, and they clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The followers of Jesus have been through hell. Absolute hell. If you're new to the scriptures, maybe you're here today and you don't have a relationship with the Lord or you're not reading the Bible uh, in, a, in a normal way. Um, the Bible actually tells the story of humanity's longing for God through the story of Israel. In fact, if you read the Bible and you're coming to it for the first time, you may think to yourself, why is there so much information about Jews? Uh, I don't know the connection between my relationship with God and the nation of Israel. Do you know what I'm talking about? And so this is the story of how God moves in humanity through this nation called Israel. And it's a group of people whom he chose to bring his promises and salvation to the rest of the world. And one of the greatest promises was that one day God would send a Messiah 
And when we think Messiah, we think about a Savior, this anointed one who comes from heaven, and Jesus is that. But their idea of Messiah was very different. It was that there was a man who was coming, and God would anoint him in a special way to rule on the throne of David and set everything right in Israel. You see, for the people who are in this moment with Jesus, they have suffered under slavery and oppression for years and years and years, 400 years under Egyptian oppression, and then years and years under Roman oppression. Basically, the nation of Israel understood what it was to be enslaved and oppressed more than anyone else. And they're standing here in this moment, and they have found their Messiah. Jesus has finally come. Mark's gospel actually opens up with this declaration that this is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And when Jesus comes on the scene, they know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they have found him. Acts 2 says that as they followed him, that his life was accredited by God with signs and wonders and miracles. They have no doubt. This is actually the guy we have been longing for and waiting for. But then suddenly, in a moment that they could not comprehend, Jesus was betrayed and murdered. Can you imagine waiting for hundreds of years, thousands of years for this coming Messiah? To be with him, to watch his miracles, to watch the signs and the wonders, to watch his power at work among the people in Israel, and all of a sudden for his life to be snuffed out? This this is meant to be the Messiah. This is going to be the king. How can a dead man be king? How can a man who claimed to be God's son end up like this? How can he make everything right when everything is going so wrong? Are are you in the mindset of the ladies? So as we read in Mark 16 and in Matthew 28, we find them in the moment of their deepest despair. And some of you can relate. Maybe you're going through a season of despair. Maybe you've gone through really hard times lately or you're feeling the weight of being crushed and broken. These people have lost everything. And as we enter into this story, this is where we find these ladies. Their hopes of Messiah who would come and rule has been dashed. Their friend and their healer and their teacher, this man that they had been with for three years, who had cast demons out of them, who had healed their broken bodies and restored their lives, is gone. They watched him bleed and be beaten and crucified and broken and put on a cross. They shamed him. They stripped him naked in front of people. This is the one that they know is the answer. He is God, and he is there, destroyed in front of them. Now, in ancient Eastern cultures where they didn't practice embalming, the way that they honored their dead was to actually go and put spices on the body just to fragrance the dying corpse. Their idea was that we can go, and this is our final tribute, the final way that we pay honor. And so the two Marys and Salome went to the tomb of Jesus to anoint his body and to cover him with spices. And by the way, if you're starting a band, I think the two Marys is like a pretty stellar band name. Um, Take it or leave it. Notice the ladies aren't going to his tomb with resurrection on their mind. All they have is grief and mourning. That's it. Marty, they don't have any sense that God is going to do anything different that day. They're just carrying spices, heading to the tomb. They're just trying to cover up the smell of death. And you know, what strikes me about this resurrection story is that for so many of us, we come to Jesus the same way. We come to him with this expectation that 
uh, I mean, we hear these promises about being saved. We hear about our sins being washed away or lives being transformed. But for many of us, we just settle to perfume the corpse of our old life. I want to go, and I don't actually expect resurrection. What I expect is just to polish up a little bit, right? Clean up enough. Go to church on Sunday, do a couple of good things, and then out pops cultural Christianity. And I just add some good, decent things to a really rotten, messed up, sinful life. And how many of you know that that is not what God has in store for you? That's not actually the biblical narrative. That's not the invitation of God. But it is that God is not interested in perfuming decaying bones or putting on um, some perfume and spices on a dead body. God's interest is in making you a brand new creation. He takes everything down to the studs. When you come to Christ, he's not just polishing up the old thing, putting on a good little smell, but it's really death inside. He says, I've come to set you free. I've come to give you a new heart. I've come to put my spirit in you. And here they are, on their way to the tomb to see Jesus. And they realize something. I don't know what moment it was, but one of the ladies, it strikes him. Oh, no, we can't actually get into the tomb. They sealed it. They put a a huge stone in the way. We're not strong enough to lift this thing. And they begin to ask each other a very important question. Who will roll the stone away? You know, all of humanity is asking that question in some way. We're trying to get to God, but there is a massive blockade standing in our way. And every single one of us is looking for a way to deal with the sin and the shame and the reason for living. We we are all looking for an answer. The ladies on the way to the tomb recognize there is something standing in the way that I can't possibly get to him apart from that thing being removed. And I think every single one of us, we could go all throughout the city, all throughout the country and ask people, what is it that is standing in your way? And one by one, we would all come to the same conclusion. It is the sin and the shame that is painted on my heart and life. And it's the thing that keeps me from God's presence. Every one of us is looking for a way to deal with this. Looking for life that isn't drowning in sin. What we are looking for is God. For some of you, you're here this morning and you're not following the Lord. And I just want to tell you outright that the hunger that you long for, that hole that you're trying to fill, will only be filled by the presence and the person of Jesus. And yeah, you can fill it with other things for a minute. It'll fill for a minute, won't it? Just just a minute. But every other way to try to satisfy this vacancy in our souls is only a temporary solution when I try to put things in there that don't fit. And and you are welcome to try. I'm not trying to get you to not try. I'm actually telling you that you all know that the evidence and the solution is true. There is nothing you can do to fill that vacancy apart from the person of Jesus. Some of you are here this morning because you are miserable. You're miserable. You can't find enough success. You can't find enough sexual encounters. You can't find enough substances. No high will meet it. No interaction, no engagement, no amount of money in your bank account. Because one day, everything that we are trying will come to nothing. And I will stand before the face of God and give an answer for my life. There is one who fills that space. And every single one of us know that we have a stone that is too heavy to move. 
We know the despair of these ladies and Jesus' disciples because we also have sunk our hopes into temporary fixes for an eternal problem. And it always comes up short. There's only one difference this time. Jesus does not come up short. He will not fail. Verse 4 of Mark 16 tells us that as the women look up, they see that the stone, which was very large, like Mark goes out of his way to say this thing's too big to move. The stone that is very large had been rolled away. And not by human hands, right? It wasn't like a guard came and just pushed it out of the way. The ladies weren't able to move it. It wasn't done by human effort. This was rolled away by the work of the Lord who is now sitting on top of the rock. Do you get the image? That thing that stood in your way from getting to him now becomes the thing under his rear end. This is the image of the resurrection power of Christ. This is the image of what happens when God shows up in your life. The very thing that prevented you from getting to him, living for him, living with him, now is a seat under his rear end. God enthrones himself on the things that he is victorious over in your life. And when you look at him, he is sitting on that thing that stood in your way. Breaking contracts, right? Just like Peyton shared this morning. That God actually takes things. Some of you this morning, you are carrying the weight of your past and your failures and your family. And God unzips those things. He removes those things. He sets those things. And he sits on those things. And he reminds you that he is the God who can remove any stone. He can remove any obstacle from your life. Anything that's keeping you away from him. God is a master at rolling away the sin and shame that stands against us. As I look in this room this morning, I can't help but to imagine the countless stories that are filled with shame and sin that we just want to live our lives covering. So, oh God, please, don't ever let that get out. Oh God, please, don't let my neighbor learn about that or my friend learn about that or my spouse hear about that. And somehow in the midst of that, guys, God doesn't shy away from our shame and our sin. He comes right into it. The story of the cross is of Jesus being so intimate with your brokenness and your failure and your sin that he puts it on himself. He dresses himself in the thing that is crushing you and keeping you back, and he actually puts it to death in front of everyone. You feel that? That means I don't have to carry it any longer. You don't have to carry it any longer because our God is a master at rolling away sin and shame. The stuff that has prevented us from his presence, God is a master at removing it. And this isn't like just a New Testament thing. Even in the Old Testament, it tells us the story of a God who wanted to roll away the reproach and the shame of Egypt off of his people. These people who were so marked with slavery and brokenness and sin, God said, no longer. I'm actually coming to strip that junk off of you forever. And when I look at you and when the world looks at you, what they will see is that they are a son and a daughter of God, no longer the slaves and the footrests of a nation of oppressors. Are you with me? What is it that God does in our lives when he begins to move in and he strips off that old identity, those old contracts, and he begins to say, you are mine. You are my son and my daughter. This is what God does. He destroys and removes what masters us so that we can get to him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says it like this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, it's amazing. Years ago, we were, I was working at Evangel Temple here in town, and they would do this, um, 
uh, a portrayal of the crucifixion every year. Do you guys remember that, those of you who have lived here? And they would put the big crosses right out there on the front hill. And I remember I was out there, and I'm a pastor's kid, so I shy away from anything churchy, okay? Just, just trying to tell you how it is. I'm, just, I'm nervous around anything too polished. It makes me feel weird. And I'm out there, and this is starting to feel a little churchy, and I'm like, uh, I'm getting a little nervous. And somebody drives by on Veterans Parkway and starts cussing Jesus' character out. And I felt the tension of what was happening. Like the Lord got into it and he said, this, this is the reality. There is something so offensive in the cross that people tend to get angry and hateful toward it, toward the thought of it, because it is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's utter foolishness. You're telling me that God would come and die like that and somehow that has changed my life? That is the statement of a person who is perishing and they don't understand the, the value, the weight of what it is that God's done. The offense of the cross that God would come and pay for my sin for me. I don't like anybody to pay for anything for me. Anybody else struggle with pride and arrogance? Thank you. I see that hand. <laughs> Can I get another? Can I? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I feel it rise up in me sometimes when somebody says, let me get your lunch. And I'm like, no, I'll get my own lunch. Thank you. I'm a man. I can take care of this. I do it, right? And, and that doesn't seem to just be fixed to men. That is for women too. Every single one of us, we struggle with this sense of wanting to provide for ourselves. And in the cross, God is saying, you can't. You don't have the capacity. You don't have the ability. What I want to do in you has to come from me because I'm the only one who can start it and finish it. And isn't this the story of all of our lives? That on the best day, the things that I want to accomplish, I don't actually have the capacity to do them apart from God. I endeavor to become a better person, to not repeat the same old sins and failures. And God says, I, I'm going to have to do this work. You can exert effort. Please, come along, do that. And we believe in that. But listen, he's saying that this, this work starts and finishes with me. It's, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. I look at him there on the cross, and I recognize that my entire ability to be washed and made new and cleansed and set free comes from him paying the price. I can't do enough penance. If you come from a Catholic tradition, I can't do enough penance. I can't earn my way. It's an open invitation to accept what he has freely given as though it was mine. This is the biblical definition of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 goes on to say it like this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can boast. Listen to that. You have nothing to give? Good news. This, it's by grace you've been saved. Grace is the picture of me giving you a gift when you have shot me. You have done ultimate evil to me, and I give you a gift in return. It's by grace. It's God's generosity toward me through my faith and trust in him. I got nothing to boast about. You know, that's really good news because sometimes even in church circles, we tend to look around and start measuring our lives against other people. Dangerous. Are you with me? Because it has nothing to do with me or you. 
I don't have anything to boast about. I got nothing. The only way we come into the kingdom is by the cross of Jesus Christ. We all come in by the same way. We get low at the foot of the cross recognizing I have nothing that has brought me into his presence so I can freely praise him and not compare myself to other people. Are you with me? We all get in the same way. Who can roll away the stone? Only God. But in Christ, he has rolled it away forever. For some of you this morning, you're standing at that place and like the ladies, you are saying, who's going to be strong enough to lift this thing? I can't move my sin. I can't move my shame. And Jesus says, I have come once and for all to remove the stone so that you have access to me. And if you long for God's heart, but you're trying to do things in your own effort, can I just like encourage you to stop it <laughs> and receive this free gift of grace? It's a gift. It's for you. It will wash you and it will change you. Jesus can roll the stone away. Secondly, he says, come and see. In verse 5 of Matthew 28, it says that the angel said to the women, don't be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen just like he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Friends, this is incredible news. Can you imagine being the ladies in that moment, coming to the face of the tomb, and even though the stone is rolled away, their eager expectation is a corpse. I think I'm going to get in here and find a body. Just the, the dead remains of our hopes. And as they walk in, the angel of the Lord says, come and see where he lay. You thought you came for this. I'm showing you there's something completely different than what you expected. And for many of us, we came to Jesus with this sense that he would forgive us once upon a time. And then the rest of our lives, we were just going to fight to make it work. How many of you uh, good, God-fearing, Bible-believing, Southern Bible Belt Christians do I have in the house? Come, earn your way to Jesus for the rest of your life. He says, no, your expectation and what you thought you would find here is altogether different than the reality. You haven't come to find a dead and dying corpse. You have come to find the risen Christ and just the remains of what you thought. He, he doesn't come and save us and cleanse us so that he can cover the past sins, but then you got to work for the next 40 or 50 years to make sure everything's okay. He actually came and he covered it all. Not only that, but we're not using a dead corpse as the evaluation of what success looks like. We're using a risen king, which means he is filling you with new life. What he wants for you is new life. What he wants for you is resurrection power. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little yelly this morning. God isn't just removing our sin and shame, but he invites us to feel the power of his resurrection at work in us. He doesn't roll back the stone just to leave us to figure it out. He rolls back the stone to reveal King Jesus high and lifted up. And God didn't allow his son to go through all that just so that we can be forgiven for past things. God has invited us into a new creation. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, that in Christ you are a new creation a new creation, that this work of the Spirit that raises Jesus from the dead at work in you has made you brand new. See, the mystery of the cross is that when you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus, we join him in his death. Are you with me? Sunday morning salvation prayers aren't safe. Are you, 
Are you hearing me? They are dangerous things. What I'm saying is, I die too. I believe that you died, Jesus. Now I die too. I join you in your death because if Jesus has died and I join him there, then when he is raised from the dead, I'm also raised with him, Maya. The spirit and the life of God in me, he raises me to new life in the same way. We join him there. Romans chapter 6, verse 2 says it like this. We've died to sin. So how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, not just water baptism, guys, but bringing us under the influence and the power of Jesus. He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism in order that just like Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God, we too may live a new life. For we have been united with him in a resurrection like his. I'm sorry, I skipped some words. For we have been united with him in a death like his, and we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know, do you know this this morning, that our old self was crucified with him so that the body that was ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that, that since Christ was raised from the dead, he can't die again. Death no longer has any mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friend, are, are you trying to resuscitate the old dead body? Like I gave my life to Jesus when I was 15, but I've lived the last 15 years going my own way. Are you trying to resuscitate that old corpse? Smelled like the Dickens. It was dead long before it started. Are you with me? I'll just do some religious things and stay miserable, I guess. Just add it to work and kids and all the things. And God says, I've got something so much better. I actually want to give you a new heart. Ezekiel says, I'll take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll take that old dead thing and I'll fill it with my spirit. We want to settle for the old stuff. I want to resuscitate that old dead thing. And Jesus says, that thing is gone. When you have put your faith in me, you crucified that. Jesus' body is gone out of that grave, and so is yours if you put your faith in him. Quit trying to find it. There is nothing more miserable than a person who has given their lives to the Lord and then fled to go back to old stuff. Misery. Misery. And we know that story. We've been that story. It's miserable, isn't it? Can't, come on. Is it miserable? There's nothing worse than saying I know him and living like I don't. Nothing worse. There's nothing worse than a bunch of church folks who don't know Jesus. Just shoot us, put us out of our misery. No, sir. Jesus is not in the grave, and he tells us we aren't either. That old thing is dead. Finally, he says, go and tell. Go and tell. The command the angel gives the women is simple. Go 
and tell the disciples? What, what is the only expectation that we can possibly have after seeing an empty grave? What is the only response system that we can possibly have after I have looked at the place where the corpse should have been and it's not there? What is the only thing that can happen when God starts to put his finger on my life and change things? Man, i got to tell everybody. I'm going to be the most uncomfortable person for folks to be around if they just want to stay in their same old miserable way because i got to say something. Can you imagine being those ladies No one had to convince them to say anything. Now, the angel said it, but are you kidding me? Casey, if you walked in through the uh, the, the tomb, and there is a, one of the accounts says that Jesus neatly folded the linen, which makes me feel good because I'm a little OCD. Like, Jesus (laughs) folded up the death cloth, and he, like, left it neatly there. Right? Some of you feel better about yourselves right now. I do, too. Like, see, thank you, Jesus. You see me. He folds it neatly. He puts it back. Can you imagine walking in, an angel sitting on a stone? There's no body there. All the grave clothes are kind of folded up neatly and left behind. What do you do? I'm flipping stuff over. I'm running out. I'm like, hey, 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 hey. (laughs) I got to tell somebody. This is the only response. When you begin to see the, the reality of the God who is not just a good God sitting in a grave, but a risen king alive forever, who has said that he actually wants to see me. He's going to use my life for his glory. He has infinite power. He's eternal in all his ways. I'm going to tell everybody. And this morning, this room is full of people who your lives have been changed by him. You've been changed. You've been transformed. You've been washed been set free. Ephesians says that all the things you didn't have access to because you weren't a Jew in the past, okay? Now, in Christ, you have access to all of them. All God's promises are yes, and in Christ, amen. All the covenants, everything, every good word that God spoke to his people are yours in Jesus. I was dead, now I'm alive. I was lost, now I'm found. I was soiled, now I'm clean. And I had nothing to do with it apart from him. But what am I going to do? And I'm going to spill out this testimony everywhere I go. This is the eager expectation of Jesus. That once we see the stone rolled away, once we see the place where Jesus once lay and experienced the power of resurrection, we have to go everywhere telling everyone this good news. N.T. Wright says this, the message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you are now invited to belong to it. We have to tell everyone. Because there are people who still believe their life only amounts to their own actions in the past. The greatest failure. Their need to work themselves up into God's grace. And somehow they have missed the message that it is by grace through faith in Christ. And by no other way. Are you with me? What would it have been like to be those ladies that day? What would it have been like? Can you just put yourselves, close your eyes for a moment, put yourselves in their position to walk into that place and to feel, to feel the weight of what God has just done. 
that the Spirit of God raised Jesus' body from the dead. And this wasn't like any other death. You know, Jesus raised a couple people from the dead in the New Testament. Are you with me? But they died again. Can you imagine going to Lazarus' second funeral? Or the little boy's second funeral? Like, it happened. That would have been crazy, right? Like, what's going to happen this time? (laughs) Jesus died once, and it was finished. He's He's alive forever. He's alive forever. The God that we serve is a man, also, who has died and is no longer dead. Heaven is being ruled right now by a man. Are you with me? Daniel 7 says this. Revelation says this. That Jesus was taken into the Father's presence full of glory. He's a man. He has a body. Are you with me? There's a flesh and blood man, only one in heaven. I don't, I don't know what that does to your theology after every funeral. They don't have bodies yet. Are you with me? At the resurrection, they will have bodies. There's one man. He's standing at the right hand of the Father. One. And every human on the face of the planet We are looking for the hope that is found in the one man who's been given the name that is above every name. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And because of this news, I leverage my life and everything I have to tell everybody else. I don't care if you're an engineer, a doctor, a president. I don't care if you're a teacher, if you put the plastic tips on the ends of shoelaces as a job. I don't care what your job is. Your role, your designation, your deepest life purpose is that people would come to know Jesus. And they would do it through your life lived and the words you speak. Say, Pastor Grant, that's just not my world. That's not my... Get over it, man. I mean, you were dead and you're alive. You owe him everything. You owe him everything. Are you with me? We owe him everything. My life is not my own. I was bought at a price. I am the possession of Jesus, and I get to know him. You guys know the moment in Elf? I know him. You know, the Santa moment? We get to know him. We get to know him. The one man who's sitting at the right hand, I I know him. Are you with me? And, And here you go. He knows you. I remember a couple years ago, there was a sweet lady, Debbie Overby, helped us to plant the church, and she helped watch kids. And um so sweet. I got to see her this week. And uh, Debbie was praying about giving missions funds. And I remember her telling me in passing like it was no big deal. She said, I was praying and the Lord said, give it to Grant. Okay. Very simple testimony. And something hit me, Rachel. Man, God knows my name. Give it to Grant. Like he said my name to hurt somebody else. You know what I'm saying? He says your name to people. He says your name. He has your name written on his hand. God knows you. He knows what you need. He knows where you're at. He knows your heart. He knows your longing. Man, he is calling you to come home to him. For some of you, you are far away from him because you think God is some distant dictator. And he's saying, I am a proud father who delights to know you. And I do know you, but I want you to belong to me. I have paid for it. I have paid for your life. I've called you my own and I want to show you who I am. He knows my name. Matthew 28 wraps up like this. Finishes with the disciples going to Galilee after the ladies speak that word to them. 
And Jesus meets them up on the mountain and he tells them this, all authority in heaven and on earth belong to me. So I tell you, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. I, I cannot help if he has rolled the stone away and I have access to him. He knows me. I cannot help if I have come and seen that his body is no longer there and the spirit he puts in me is the spirit of the risen Christ. I cannot help but to go and to tell everyone everywhere. Because that's what he's doing. Are you with me? We do what he does. We go where he goes. It's not up to me, Cammy, to figure out where I go. He goes. I follow him. It's not up to me to figure out how to tell people. That's not my call. I just listen to what he's saying, and I say that. What is God saying? What is he doing? Do you know that he knows you? Do you know that he's inviting you? Go ahead and bow your, eye, your heads and close your eyes. This morning, very simply, the Lord has paid it all, and he is resurrected in power, and he is calling you to follow him. Follow him. There's this weird message at the end of Matthew 28 where it says that the disciples are on the mountain, and they saw him. Risen up, he's telling them to go, and it says that some doubted. They saw the full evidence that everything that Jesus said was true was true, and some still were wrestling with the base level of faith. This morning, for some of you, you have been wrestling with doubt and with faith, and Jesus says, I am calling you to come and surrender your life. Not to just raise your hand in a service and to walk out. To live a life that is devoted to knowing me and belonging to me. To live a crucified life. The image in the gospel is not that we just add a little bit of Jesus to us, but that we move out and Jesus moves in. And this morning, if that's you and you're just saying, Grant, I don't know him. I've been around church. Maybe I haven't. I've got doubts, whatever. But I want to know him like that. And I hear this message and I believe and I want to devote myself to following him. If that's you, would you just lift your hand?